recording is from Parramatta Christian Church. We pray that this message inspires you in your walk with Christ. in well with my message this morning, uh, which is awesome when God does that. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to church. It's good to see you here. Uh, glad to have those who are joining us online, joining us as well. Praise God for modern technology that enables us to do this. Um, and I trust that you've been enjoying our series so far and just wanted to kind of encourage you um, just with this simple thought this morning that the Lord has not forgotten you. I just really felt to encourage you with that, uh, whether that's for one person or for many here, um, that this sense that as we go through life with all of the challenges and uh, unique stories and the unique hardships we face, that it's so easy to think that God might overlook us. And I just felt to encourage and challenge you to remember what Gabriel shared with us around communion, that that is the greatest display that God does not forget. He does not overlook whatever you're going through, whatever challenge, whatever circumstance you find yourself in. It might seem like God is distant and far and removed. And the psalmist knew all about that as they cried out to God saying, Where are you, God? Why have you forsaken me? Do you not hear? Do you not know? Do you not see? And the answer that Gabriel reminded us of is that he does see and he does know and he does care deeply. And for you to be encouraged by that. And just wanted to pray for you this morning uh, that way um, before we come around God's word. Father, I just pray, Lord, for anyone here who's feeling overlooked or that they're not heard or they're not seen by you. Lord, that in this moment, just as we've remembered the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, that we would be encouraged in our hearts that you see, that you do know, that you do care, you do hear. And Lord, that we can be comforted in the truth that as our heavenly shepherd, you go before us and you are with us always, even to the end of the age. And we pray, Lord, that you would minister the, the comfort and the peace and the encouragement and the strength that comes from that truth to every heart this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, I wonder if you recognize this group, if you can put that picture up. Some of the older people here might know who this group is. Any, any, uh, any uh, clues, any ideas, any guesses? No? No, no. Same era. This is a group that you've probably never heard of because they probably only had one successful hit. They're called the Birds. Anybody know the Birds? Weird name. Yeah, the Birds. In 1965, they had a hit song that went to number one on the U.S. hottest 100 billboard charts. And that song was called? Yes. I knew somebody would know it. Turn, turn, turn. And what was unique about that song, what's interesting about that song is that Pretty much 95% of it is a direct quotation of Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 1 to 8. In fact, the writer, he said that he only added, I think, four words that were not part of Ecclesiastes chapter 3. And he made a lot of money out of writing a song based on the Bible. You can you actually you can see YouTube clips. Uh, the, the Australian band, The Seekers, also did a cover of it at, at some point, I think. Now, what's interesting is that even though many people might be familiar with this passage, I wonder if they really understand what the teacher, the writer of this passage, is trying to say in this passage. 
And that's what we want to engage with this morning. And in, in a lot of ways, I feel privileged and blessed this morning to be preaching from Ecclesiastes chapter 3. If you're going to preach from any passage in Ecclesiastes, this is probably one of the best ones to preach from. Uh, there's a lot of good stuff in here. There's still, you know, the typical kind of dark, dismal stuff. But generally, it's more upbeat. There's more about God in here than in many of the other chapters. So I'm, I'm pretty excited that I get to preach this um, easier passage. But as we continue our series on broken, uh, our broken series, as we journey through Ecclesiastes, and if you're joining us for the first time, uh, we're, we're three weeks in uh, to our series. As we're looking at this incredible book, a challenging and difficult book, but a book that I think has a lot to say to us about real life. And this author, the teacher, as we've come to, to know and refer to him, um, he wants us to see life as it really is. And I think he wants to do two things. One, he wants to expose the illusions that we might sometimes buy into about the state of life and how life works in our world with the aim of not just, I guess, helping us to sit with the weight of the futility of it, which is the common theme that runs through this whole book, this idea of everything is meaningless or futile or fleeting or vanity, depending on what Bible translation you have. Not only do we we sit with the discomfort of that because... I think intuitively and deep in our heart, we know that to be true. And I think that's why he recognizes that pursuing a different kind of life is actually an illusion, a mirage that we need to be woken up from. And he tries to do that. But he just doesn't leave us in that pit of despair and discouragement and darkness and gloom and depression, even though it feels like that sometimes. What he's trying to do is provoke us once we acknowledge the reality of life as it is to live differently to make different choices, to reconsider the path that we're on and to maybe think that God wants us to live life more meaningfully, more significantly, more uh, joyfully if we just understand how God created life to be and pursue Him in life. And so I think that's what, in in a nutshell, uh, we will find as we continue to journey through Ecclesiastes. So this week, we we come to Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and I've entitled my message... Open your eyes. And that's why I think Gabriel's communion is very, very fitting. Open your eyes. Let me pray and we'll jump into it. Father, I ask for your help in, uh, in our journey this morning as we engage with this great chapter and this wonderful book. It is hard and it is challenging and we need to wrestle with the stuff that we find here. But Lord, I pray that you will give us your spirit's wisdom and that you'll open our eyes to see the wondrous things that are in your word. That we might, Lord, be... Uh, challenged by the illusions that we, maybe we're believing and buying into and pursuing, Lord, and that we might be encouraged to pursue a different kind of life with you at the center, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So the reason I've entitled my message, uh, Open Your Eyes, is that several times in this chapter, the teacher uses the word see or saw. Uh, we find it in verse 10, I have seen, verse 16, and I saw, um, and then again verse 18, uh, that they may see. Uh, Verse 22, so I saw, uh, and then again in verse 22, for them to see what will happen after them. And I think the teacher, as as we've already seen, as he's exploring life, as he's considering things, as he's applying his wisdom and his intellect and his reason to discover what life is really about, he's seeing some things. And as he's seeing things, he wants us to see what he's seeing. Or he he talks about that God does certain things in the world or life is a certain way with, with the aim that people would actually see the reality of things as they are and not buy into the illusion. You know, I love Matrix. 
uh, one of my favorite all-time movies. I'm going to have a few movie references every time I preach because I think there's so many movie references that can be made from Ecclesiastes. But one of the, the great truths from the Matrix movie is this idea of the, the wool that's been pulled over our eyes, that we've come to believe that the real world that we live in is actually real. And in Matrix, the, the main premise is that there is another world a spiritual world, a hidden world that we can't perceive unless we're able to open our eyes. And that's where the blue pill, red pill comes in. You have the choice. And Ecclesiastes is wanting to confront us with that choice. Will we open our eyes and see the reality of our world as it really is? And I think in this passage, a helpful way to come at it in chapter 3 is that the, the writer, the teacher, wants us to look in four different directions. He wants us to see four different things. And that's going to be the structure that we follow uh, this morning. The first thing I think, the first direction he wants us to look in is to look up. Is to look up. And so as we begin, he says, there is a time for everything and a season for every activity under the heavens. And then he goes on to list these different um, seasons of life, as it were, a time to uh, be born, a time to die, plant, uproot, and so on and so forth. I'm not going to go through all of them. But the idea that he's wanting to capture here is the rhythm of everyday life. In chapter one, he talked to us about the rhythm of the universe, these patterns that exist forever and ever, long after we're, we're gone, they will continue to exist that we don't have any control over. In our present passage, he wants to get us to see that in the seasons of our life, the ebb and flow of our everyday reality, all of life, it's the same. We are not really in control. And what he wants us to get here as he launches off with verse 1 with this big idea. There's a time for everything and a season for every activity. And he wants, us to, uh, he wants to convey all of life. And then when he lists these things, he's using a literary device called a merismus. Now this is interesting maybe for you to know. And a merismus is uh, a, a, a using statements of po polar extremes as a way of embracing everything in between. You might be more familiar with uh, the use of this in Romans chapter 8 when Paul does the same thing. When he says, neither life nor death, you know, uh, uh, height nor depth, angels or demons, present or past, can separate us from the love of God. That's a merismus. He's not wanting to limit your focus to just those specific things. He's using the polar extremes to convey everything in between to kind of summarize all of life and that's what the teacher is doing here and some commentators also note that there are 14 pairs here which is 28 different things and that's a number that kind of represents completion the number it's a multiple of seven and four usually represents kind of the four corners of the world the four different directions of the wind all of that kind of stuff all of that to convey the totality of life and he's saying that there's a rhythm and a pattern and we all intuitively know this to be true. And maybe you've seen the seasons of life in your own life come and go. Good seasons and bad seasons. And you might have talked about seasons in work or seasons in family. Or, uh, and you've maybe even used that expression, I'm in a tough season right now. Or I'm in a good season right now. We, we intuitively know that life works that way. And the point that the teacher is wanting us to grab a hold of in all of that is that you and I... Do not control the seasons of our own lives. We do not control our own destinies. And see what he says in verse 9. What do workers gain from their toil? That's the same expression we found in chapter 1 verse 3 and in chapter 2 verse 11. And it's the same expression we'll keep finding when the teacher wants to snap us out of the illusion and say, Hey, when you think about the seasons of life, 
Do you really think you control them? Do you really think you can manipulate and manage and, and control your own destiny? What do people gain from their toil? Verse 10, again, a, a phrase that is used in chapter 1, verse 13. I have seen the burden that God has laid on the human race. His point is, if we continue to believe in the illusion that we can actually control the seasons of our life, we're going to hit this brick wall of futility again and again and again and again. We're going to hit this burden of, of this brokenness that we will experience in our hearts, this frustration that life is not working for us as we try to make it work for our gain, to give us a surplus at the end of it all, that we have something that we can take with us, the teacher says, you're going to hit that brick wall and it's not going to be pleasant. You will feel the weight of that burden. But the reason that, again, this is such an encouraging chapter is, is verse 11. He says, look up in the midst of the seasons of your life as you're going through stuff and you realize that you can't control or you can't uh, determine any of that, there is one that does determine that. There is one that controls. He, God, that is referred to in verse 10, He has made everything beautiful in its time. Even though you and I don't control the seasons of our life, the teacher says, look up, because there is one that does control the seasons of your life. And that word beautiful, it doesn't mean pretty. Because let's be honest, some of the seasons in our life, they're not pretty. They're not aesthetically beautiful. It's not like we will stand back and go, oh, that was a beautiful season. No, that's not what it means. It means ordered or fitting or right. So beautifully fitting or beautifully right or ordered. And that is the confidence that the teacher wants us to have. In the chaos of our lives, in the highs and the lows, in the good times, the bad times, in the midst of war or peace and love and hate and silence and speaking and searching and giving up and keeping and throwing away, coming and going, in all of that, there is one. There is one that is at work. Even though as humans, our work doesn't produce anything, our work doesn't produce gain, there is a worker, capital W, another actor in our universe whose work does achieve, whose work does produce gain, whose work is beautifully fitting in its time. So look up, look up and be encouraged. The second direction he wants us to look at is to look within, to look within because he says he, verse 11b, has also set eternity in the human heart. Look within. Look into your heart. And again, people have wondered, what, what does this mean, this eternity in our hearts? And I, I'm not 100% sure. The best guess that I can give you is this sense that, that we all, again, intuitively carry in our hearts, maybe, or the majority of us, that there is more to life than we see. That there's more. Maybe it's just a longing. Maybe it's just a hope that... You know, there, there is a day when there will be no war, only peace. There will be no hate, only love. And all of those positive things in the, 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 the cycles of life, the positive seasons will remain and all the brokenness will be gone. Maybe that's what it means to have this sense of eternity in our heart. Or maybe it's to have this sense that we, we have an understanding of time, of past and present and, and future. And there is a sense that we carry in our heart that... If, if that's the case, that there is a future beyond life, beyond the grave, beyond what we know and see in this present material world that's bound in time and space. Maybe that's what it means. And as Arnold said last week, maybe it speaks to this longing in our heart for the garden 
that is ahead. The garden that was lost because of our sin. And we're looking ahead to the garden in, in the book of Revelation. And we kind of all carry that kind of innate, deep desire in our hearts. But look at what the writer goes on to say. Even though God has put eternity in our heart, no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. So even though there is this sense of eternity in our heart, we, we, we're confused by it. We don't fully understand it. We, we, don't, we, we can't articulate it. And even though we have a sense of time and the movement of time, we, we can't control it. We, we can't manipulate it. We can't manage it. We, we, the, the, the key, as it were, to unlock our ability to control and manipulate time for our own end remains elusive to us. And that's why it's a mystery in, in, in this life where we, we, we try to find this key to, to grab a hold of one of our most precious commodities, time. And yet we, we never find it. And again, there's plenty of movie that plays with the idea of time travel. One of my favorites was Back to the Future. And again, you would know from that movie that when people begin to manipulate with time, particularly for their own benefit, the world goes wrong, badly, crazily. And even in those fantasy time travel movies, there are these rules apparently about what you're supposed to do and not do when you travel in time to not mess up the universe. It's this idea that humans long to discover this key to control and manipulate time to make it work in my favor so that I can have gain. And the teacher says, yeah, look within and you can see the longing for that, but you will also see that you will never fathom it. You'll never understand it. But look at verse 11, uh, sorry, verse 14. What an encouragement. The teacher says, I know that everything God does will endure forever. You see, your work won't. Your toil will not produce gain, but I know that everything that God does will endure forever. And it, it, God's work is eternal. It transcends time. It's outside of time. It's, that's why we can't even begin to fathom it as we live our lives that God sees every moment concurrently, that God lives as it were outside of time and space and engages with us as humans within time and space. That's mind-blowing. But he says, but the confidence we can have that God's work, what he does, will endure forever. Notice the number of times that the teacher is using words to describe God's work, what God has done, what God does, what God does in verse 14. All of that takes us in some ways back to Genesis where God is the worker in the garden, creating this universe, creating humanity and reminding us of our creatureliness that only he is eternal. Only he and his work will endure forever. We are not him. We are his created beings that are finite and limited and temporal, bound by our humanity. And then he goes on to say, and nothing can be taken from it. Nothing can be added to it. Nothing can be taken from it. And what an encouragement that no season no good or bad thing, no ultimate evil will ever be able to ultimately derail the purposes of God for the universe and in our lives individually. That in every season, God's work will prevail. Nothing can be added to it and nothing can be taken from it. And listen to what he says, verse, as it continues, God does this. Why does God do this work? So that people will fear him. Again, to remind us of our creatureliness. 
And a fear is not a dread word there. It's about reverence. It's about awe. It's about worship. God does all of this in our time and in our world to remind us of our humanity, to remind us that we were created to live in dependence on Him, to, to bring us to a place where we will bow the knee before Him and say, you are God and I am not. And to worship Him in reverence and in awe. That's the point. That's what God wants us to hear The third direction that the teacher wants us to look at is to look around. Is to look around. Verse 15, whatever is has already been. We've come across this idea in chapter 1 verse 9. And what will be has been before. And God will call the past to account. Verse 16, and I saw something else under the sun. In the place of judgment, wickedness was there. In the place of justice, wickedness was there. Again, as we look around our world, it's no different. It's no different. In spite of all our advancements, technologically, in, in spite of how, we, uh, how much supposedly we have evolved and we are a lot more reasonable and rational, supposedly, wickedness is still in the place of judgment. Wickedness is still in the places of justice. There is still so much corruption and violence and war and greed and, and control and power that is abused in our world today. And so the teacher says, look around. Look around. Do, do you see what I see? Can you see the brokenness of our world that is all around us? And, and, and the more, as humans, we, 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 we buy into the illusion that we can control our lives, that we can control time, that we can make life work for our gain. And there are plenty of people who still live that way, who still believe that. Believe the illusion. But often when they pursue that, when the rich and the powerful pursue trying to clutch uh, clutch and, and grasp life and control life, it comes at the expense of the oppressed and the poor and the marginalized. You know, people often say that there is enough food in the world to end starvation. But starvation exists because of greed still being part of the human condition. You see, no matter how much technological advances we see, no matter how much uh, education and information is made available to us, the fundamental brokenness of our heart as humans pursue their, their desire to be God will continue to cause wickedness and corruption and evil and brokenness to remain in our world. A lot of the brokenness that we see in our world is because of us. It's because of our sinful hearts. But again, into that bleak picture... The teacher injects light. In verse 17, he says, I said to myself, God will bring into judgment both the righteous and the wicked. For there will be a time, again, the same phrase we started with. There will be a time for every activity, a time to judge every deed. See, you see, the God of the Bible is not just the author and the maker of every season of life. He's not only uh, in control of time and eternity and his work will endure and no one can add or take away. Not only that, but our God is able to bring judgment and justice and righteousness. Because he tells us in verse 12, that the, uh, 15, sorry, that the reason God can do this is because God controls time. And he's able to call the past to account. Now that phrase means he's able to bring from the past the things that have slipped away and hidden away like a shepherd who goes after lost animals that's the phrase you see because of God being who he is nothing is hidden from him 
Nobody gets away with anything. That our God will bring into judgment both the righteous and the wicked and every activity will be brought before his gaze. No one gets away. And so for the wicked, the unrighteous, those who refuse to bow the knee to God, to recognize their dependence and their need for him, that's really bad news. They won't get away with anything. Even though in this life, and the writer will go on to say, sometimes as we look around at our world, we think, God, how can wickedness prevail? God, when will you ever judge? God, will you make these things right? God, our world is so broken. There's so much injustice and violence and corruption. God, when? And even the people of the Bible, they wrestle with that. In Psalm 73, the psalmist cries out the same way. God, I don't understand this. The wickedness, see, the wicked seem like they're succeeding and they're the, the rich and the powerful and they live for a long time, but the righteous are oppressed and they die young and I don't get that. And maybe you've wrestled with that and, and I, I pray that you hear the teacher's encouragement. Nobody gets away with anything. And even time can't hide the wickedness. God will call it into account. And the good news, even for those of us who identify with the wicked, is we too can find hope in the God of the Bible. And that's the good news of the New Testament. That because God loves humanity so much, He doesn't differentiate between the good people and the bad people. He loves everyone. He sent His Son Jesus to come and to take upon Himself the judgment for all human rebellion and sin. To, on the cross, as we heard this morning, to take upon his own body the full wrath of God's anger on himself so that now, because of Jesus and because of what he did on the cross, you and I, if we identify as being the wicked who refuse to acknowledge God as, as God and refuse to bow our knee and continue in our rebellion and our sin and our disobedience, can find hope if we trust in Jesus because Jesus has taken the punishment for our wickedness. On himself and instead offers us forgiveness and pardon and grace and love and mercy and compassion and invites us into the family of God and that we too will be declared among the righteous not because we're good people but because he gives us his robes of righteousness to put on his perfect life his perfect life of obedience to the father submitting to the father's will in completeness he gives us his perfect record that we might receive it and we could be among the righteous. And for the righteous, this is good news because we don't need to stand before God in fear or dread. We don't have to fear this day of judgment that is coming on all humanity. As Hebrews tells us, we don't have to dread that. And as 1 John tells us, we don't have to fear that day of punishment because we stand righteous in Jesus. Because we put our confidence in Him. Because we've received His grace and forgiveness on the basis of His finished work. We can stand confident that what we will receive is not judgment, but love. Love completely and totally. So look around you and may the brokenness you see direct your heart to long for the God who will bring everything into judgment but has already judged sin in his son and so offers you and I forgiveness and mercy and grace and compassion. The last direction he wants us to look in is ahead. Look ahead. Death is coming. And again, this is one of his favorite themes. He'll keep coming back to it over and over and over again. In, in chapter 2, death was the great equalizer between the wise and the fool. And the teacher goes, oh, well, what's the point of being wise? The wise and the fool end the same way, experience life 
the end of life the same way. Here, it's humans and animals. It's kind of getting more and more bleak. He's going, you know what? In death, we're no different to the animals. They die, we die, all carbon life forms return to dust. You know, any, any funeral you go to at the committal service, you'll hear them say, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. And we know that to be true. And we intuitively know what he's saying is true, that when you, in the light of death, we're all the same. Every carbon life form ends the same. That much he's sure about. But what he's not sure about is what happens after. He's agnostic. He's searching. Verse 21, who knows if the human spirit rises upward and if the spirit of animals go down into the earth. At least he's aware that there is two parts of the human experience, our body part and the spirit part. And he's saying, I'm not sure. I mean, clearly he has some sense of life after death because he's talked about eternity. He's talked about God bringing into judgment the righteous and the wicked, which is clearly after death. So he has some sense that there is more to life after I die, but I'm not exactly sure the nature of that and what it's going to be like and, and you know, how that all works. Again, we're in the realm of mystery. And so he says, look ahead for every one of us because that is the certainty that we will all face. The one season none of us can escape. The one reality that we will all hit at some point in our life. And he says, we ought to live in light of that. It is the one thing we know for sure. Eternity in our hearts, we might not fully fathom and understand that. We might not fully understand how wickedness can still live in a world that God is in control of. But the one thing we know for sure is that one day we will all die. So now that you know that to be true, how will you live in light of that? And so he ends, again, as we've seen throughout already in the three chapters we've just looked at and we will continue to see this so-called hedonistic idea of live hard, party hard, just go for it. You know, he says again, so I saw that there is nothing better for a person than to enjoy their work because that is their lot. He seems to be saying, look, in, in light of the certainty of your death, carpe diem, right? seize the day. Another movie reference from Dead Poets Society that line, carpe diem, which means, it's a Latin phrase that means seize the day, was made famous uh, by Robin Williams' character as he was telling his students in the hallway. As they looked at these pictures of you know, uh, previous students that had achieved great things and done great things, and he's whispering, seize the day, seize the day. Their, their spirits are saying to you, seize the day. To, to instill in them this sense of, look, I, there's no guarantees in life. I don't know what's ahead. I only have this moment. So I'm going to live it for myself, live it hard, live it well. And, and that seems to be what the writer is saying to us. Now, again, there's a danger. There's two dangers here that we need to avoid. One is embracing that idea in an ungodly way. And what do I mean by that? Well, in our culture, there are many, many people who know that death is coming. Absolutely. Absolutely. And who are living hard and living well and living just for the moment. Who are seizing the day, milking everything out of life. Just living an extreme life because that's what they're supposed to do. Live each day fullest, absolutely. And sometimes as Christians we can buy into that. Going, well, you're right teacher. What you're saying is true. We're all going to die so I should just live my best life now. You've heard probably preachers use that line. Your best life now. But Jesus warns us against that. 
in Luke chapter 12, he talks about a story about a rich farmer who was starting to think that way. He was already rich and he had a bumper harvest and he tells himself, seize the day. I'm going to live well. I'm going to live hard. I'm going to build bigger barns. I'm going to store all my stuff. I'm going to accumulate everything I've got and save it for a rainy day. And then I'm set. I'm good. For the rest of my life, I'm good. And Jesus says, you fool. You're a fool because you've lived without God at the center of your life. So we need to guard our hearts against a, a cultural hedonism or a cultural carpadium of seizing the day and living ignorant of God. And I, and I don't think the teacher will allow us to do that. Because when we go back to verse 12 where he uses that same phrase again, I know that there is nothing better for people than to be happy. Notice some of the different things he says here. Nothing more for people to be happy and to do good while they live. That each of them may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all their toil. This is the gift of God. You see, the teacher would critique our culture's idea of Carpadium and say, no, for a Christian, there's a biblical Carpadium that looks very different. And it is the kind of Carpadium that says, yes, I'm going to seize the day, but God, I'm going to live my life as a gift from you, which means I'm a steward of my life. Which means you are going to hold me accountable for how I've lived my life. Which means I ought to be focused not just on living my life to accumulate and gather and, and gain from it myself, for my own pleasure, for my own desires, for my own selfish uh, enjoyment of life, but to do good with all that you've entrusted me. Because I will be held accountable for what you have given me. Because everything is a gift from you. In chapter 2, in the writer says, everything is from the hand of God, verse 24. So there's one danger that we ought to guard our hearts from. The second is the opposite danger. And I think sometimes in church history and maybe even in our own lives, sometimes we are more at risk at falling into, which is what I would say uh, the opposite of Christian hedonism or hedonism is Christian ascetism, which is the renouncement of all good things. We can be so focused on the life after, so focused on the heavenly life to come that we downplay and degrade, degrade the joys and the wonder and the beauty of life here and now. We get so focused on the kingdom to come that we don't realize that Jesus said the kingdom is here because he's here. I remember growing up and one of the things that we found really difficult as kids was being told that God would not be happy with us if we played cricket on Sunday because it was the Lord's Day. I mean, you know what Sri Lankans are like with cricket. You just you know, wander around Parramatta on a Saturday and a Sunday. You see you know, just about every cricket playing space occupied by brown people, right? It's just, it's, it's a religion. You know, and we'd, we'd been to church and we'd come home from church. And in the afternoon, I remember one particular time we'd set up our cricket and we were playing. And my grand uncle, and my dad will verify this story. My grand uncle came out with a cane chasing us because we were playing cricket on a Sunday. And so you grow up thinking, man, God must not be into cricket. God, you know, doesn't want us to have a good time. And sometimes as Christians, we can 
head in that direction where we become legalistic and, and negative and critical and we're against everything and we poo-poo everything and we want to rain on everybody's parade and we want everybody to w- walk around with these long faces and sucking lemons all the time. And if you love sucking lemons, good for you, I don't. Uh, but this idea that somehow to enjoy life is sinful and we, we become against a whole bunch of things that Jesus was never against. And we see Jesus, when he was here, living this incredibly rich, full, joyful life, enjoying wine, going to weddings, and, you know, that was, don't get me even started about, you know, alcohol, that's a whole other subject, and dancing, and going to the movies, and the list of things can go on and on that many of you, and many, like me, grew up hearing that God would not be happy with. And we end up projecting this image of God who is dull, and boring, and lifeless, and against everything, so far removed from the truth that Jesus said, The life I want to give you is abundant and full and rich. And it's not just eternal, but it's living that eternal life here and now in this kingdom because I have come. And the kingdom of God has come because I've come. And so it's a challenge to us to, to, like, and again, the, the, the writer of Ecclesiastes, the teacher, reminds us of that. There's nothing better for people, verse 12, than to be happy to enjoy, to eat and drink and find satisfaction in all our toil. Avoid both extremes. Yes, carpadium, but a biblical carpadium that radically transforms our wrong cultural ideas but lives a life in fear of God, in reverence of God, in awe of God, in worship of God, with God at the center, seeing everything that we have, all of the good gifts that God has given us as gifts to be enjoyed and delighted in. And, and lived in such a way that we're doing good and being good stewards of it with all our life, knowing that we will give account to God as to how we lived and used the gifts that he gave us, that's biblical carpadium. Seize the day. Live in fullness. So kind of summarizing uh, the main thoughts, the take-homes, here they are. And I'm just going to go through these real quick. If you're not yet a Christian, if you're on that journey then I believe Ecclesiastes, the teacher, would call you to seek the God that he's talking about here. The God who controls every season. The God who is eternal. The God who does this thing so that we would bow in reverence and awe before him and acknowledge that he is the creator. The God who we will stand and have to give account for every action, every thought, every motivation of our heart. But he's also the God that has made a way through Jesus to give you forgiveness and pardon because he absorbs in himself the wrath and the judgment of God. Seek him out. And if you're joining us online or if you're here inside or outside and you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I pray that this series, I pray that this message provokes and stirs your heart to seek out the God of the Bible, to seek out the God revealed by Jesus. And you can do that by contacting us through our website. You can do that by coming at the end of this service if you're here and having a chat to me. I would love to to explain more fully what it means to bow the knee to Jesus as the Lord of your life. But for those of us who would say that we are already committed to Christ, that we have bowed the knee and we're living, wanting to live to honor him, here's some practical things, I guess, that flow out of our journey this morning. Firstly, trust God in every season. The good, the bad, the mourning, the dancing, the weeping, the laughing seasons of life. Trust God. Trust that he will make everything fitted and right and ordered in his time. In his time. He will do it. Trust Him in those seasons. And whatever season you're in right now, whatever season you're going through, whatever you're facing right now, the thing about a season 
is that it will pass. We might not know how long the season will go, but for it to be a season, it means that it will pass. So keep trusting God in whatever season you find yourself. Trust God in the mysteries of life. You might have this sense of eternity, but time and how it all works, and maybe even life after death, you're a bit vague on Trust God in the mysteries of life. Trust God in the things that you can't explain. Trust God even when you think, man, I don't get that. That makes no sense to me. But God, I know you're good and I know you're for me and I know you love me and I will trust you even when I don't see the outcomes that my heart longs for. Trust him in the mysteries. Trust God in spite of present realities. As you look around at the brokenness of our world and it breaks your heart to see injustice and violence and corruption and evil reigning and ruling, in whatever form that might take, and even maybe more personally in your own life as you see the ravages of sickness and disease or uh, oppression or broken relationships or whatever it is that you see as the injustice and the violence and the corruption and the power grabbing in your life personally. Trust God in that. You can rest in the assurance that he will bring all things to judgment. Trust Jesus' victory over death. Death is not the last word. And even though the teacher is a bit vague and unclear about what will happen, because of the New Testament, we know what will happen. I invite the band to jump up. We know what will happen. Jesus rose from the dead and he promises that we too will experience resurrection life if we trust in him. Trust Jesus' victory over death to give you hope and encouragement as you live with the certain reality of your own death. And lastly, enjoy God's gifts good gifts now. Enjoy God's good gifts now. Before I conclude, and we, maybe we'll sing uh, a song, um, The Goodness of God that we sang before. I want to speak just briefly as I conclude about life after death. And maybe like the teacher, you, you're watching or maybe you're here and you know, it's all kind of vague and a mystery and it's all kind of out there. and Maybe you've kind of thought about it as this fantasy of you know, less intelligent people who need something to hold on to to give them hope to handle the harshness of life. You know, maybe you've kind of gone, oh, I don't know, but it's not empirical. You can't prove it. There's no you know, way that you can actually know that there is life after death. And yeah, I get that. And that's probably what the teacher was thinking and feeling too. And to that, I want to speak to you the difference that Jesus makes. And Jesus told another parable, it's in Luke 16, about um, this, this man called Lazarus, who was the beggar, and this rich guy who lived selfishly for himself. And it says he enjoyed life and he, he did all this stuff and completely oblivious of death and life after death. And the beggar suffered all his life, had nothing, and, and both of them died and they went to different places. Hades and Abraham's bosom. And when the rich man finally realizes that there's life after death, he calls out to Abraham in Abraham's bosom and says, Abraham, will you please send Lazarus to come and just dip his fingers in the water and cool my tongue because I'm in torment here. And Abraham kind of goes, sorry, can't do that. There's a big chasm between us. And then the rich man goes, Abraham, please, I've got a whole family of people, my brothers, they don't know about life after death. They don't know about this terrible, horrible torment when you live wickedly and unrighteously. Can you please send Lazarus back to warn them? And Abraham kind of goes, no, we can't do that either. They have the law and the prophets. Let them read that. And, and the rich man goes, no, 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 that, that's not enough. If somebody goes back from the dead and tells them that life after death is real, 
and that they will be held accountable in this judgment, then they'll believe. And Abraham just says, no, it's not going to happen. But see, the thing is, we have one that has come back from the dead. Jesus came back, was seen and was testified and is recorded in the Bible that he resurrected from the dead. And he told us that it's true and it's real. And there is life after death and there is judgment to come. Now, here's my question to you. What if it's true? What if it's all true and that there is life after death and that there is judgment? Wouldn't you do yourself a favor by looking into it? I trust that you will. I trust that you will. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your word. It is so relevant and powerful and impacting. And Lord, as we in this moment reflect, will you speak into our hearts? Will you show us, Lord, where we are pursuing a mirage, an illusion, where we're chasing after the wind? Will you expose, Lord, those things in our heart that are not centered in you? And bring us to a place of repentance, of bowing the knee, of acknowledging and trusting in the Lordship of Jesus in our life. In every season, pray particularly of those who are going through a really difficult season right now that you will comfort them and strengthen them and that this message has encouraged them to trust in you the God of the seasons and I pray for those Lord who don't know you yet Lord that they would be challenged to think about the realities of life and as they see the brokenness in the world as they look around as they even look within their heart and, and sense within their heart this intuitive knowledge of eternity that you've placed there and that there is maybe life after death because of Jesus. I pray, Lord, that you would draw them to you and that they would come to know you and bow before you as their Savior and Lord. And I pray this in Jesus' name. for listening to the Parramatta Christian Church podcast. To hear other sermons or to find out more about our church, please visit our website at pcc.org.au.